0: We're actually uh, jumping way ahead in the series we've been doing on Sunday mornings. We've been doing a series on Sunday mornings called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel Series, and in that series, we're on Part 2D this coming Sunday. We just finished Part 2C this past Sunday, and if you look at, uh, hopefully you have one of the outlines you have in front of you is called Element 2, the Attributes of Mankind, or Element 1 the elements, attributes of God. But somewhere, at uh, Roman numeral one of your outline or Roman numeral two, if you have one of those, should be, I got those, are, should be have the eight essential elements. And we're looking at number one, the attributes of God. Number two, the attributes of man. Number three, the 10 commandments. And we sh- are making the point that those three are the component parts of anyone's worldview. Because uh, the first thing that everyone asks in a worldview is who or what is ultimately ra- real, For a monotheist, for a theist, that is the God of the Bible. Uh, Secondly, uh, in a world view, you ask what is the intrinsic or built-in nature of man, uh, which is what we have been, uh, we'll finish up hopefully this Sunday. Then you look at the Ten Commandments, which has to do with how should we treat our fellow man. Uh, Thou shall not steal implies private property. It implies an economic system. And uh, thou shall not kill. Uh, implies societal and civil law. And so, um, you know, the Ten Commandments become the basis and have been the basis in Western culture for civilization. Fourthly, we're looking at the historical narrative of Israel. There are no gospel presentations that I can think of today in America that, that bring that to bear. However, there are no gospel presentations in the Bible that that's not what it's all about all the presentations of the book of Acts of the gospel are basically stating that God was in Jesus Christ reconciling the world to himself and that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel, that Israel is the Son of God and Jesus is the Son of God and Israel is a foreshadow and a type, and Jesus fulfills everything of the Old Testament. And uh, that is a point constantly being made from the Acts 2 first sermon on. Now, uh, there actually is a book on our foundational list by a guy named Scott McKnight called The King Jesus Gospel that attempts to address that issue. So it's not that no one is aware of that issue, but very few. Um, Jesus, uh, Number five, Jesus Christ, the solution. That is, he's the judge, the bridge, the mediator. He's the atonement. Uh, Eight exchanges made at Easter is a message we give, and uh, so forth. Six, we talk about re- what it means to receive Jesus Christ, uh, which involves two main steps, b- the new birth and conversion, and conversion itself involves two sub points, trusting or, or following, obeying faith, and repentance, turning from and turning toward the following, seeking of God, and conforming our life to God's will. And then seventhly uh, is the first five steps into the kingdom of Christ, and eighthly is uh, three th- different ways of maturing in Christ, especially the three tools of grace or the three three delivery systems of grace. So tonight we're jumping down to element seven, the first five steps of entering ke- uh, the kingdom of Christ and if you look at Roman numeral two on tonight 's outline, uh, first of all on the title, you'll see that this is from a um, a, a way I did this uh, series many, many years ago before we decided that we really had to put in uh, um, the historical narrative of Israel and expanded it to eight. And I like the number eight increasingly since eight is the number of new birth and eight, the eighth day of the week is the first day of the week and Christ rose on the eighth day of the week. And eighth is the number of the kingdom of God and so forth. So, um, so I like whenever I can work it into B8 points, but in this, in per, in this particular uh, teaching, what we want to take note of is um, all through the Old Testament, there are var- various foreshadowings of the church, and the church itself is a type of Christ and a body of Christ, and John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ became the tabernacle of God, and it says, Jesus tabernacled among us. And so the tabernacle of Moses and the tabernacle of, of Solomon, or the temple of Solomon, I should say, those two in particular have lots of verbiage. You can, If you were taking notes, you could write down Exodus 25, 8 and 9, and Exodus 25, 40, where Moses is told to see to it that he makes everything exactly according to the pattern that was shown him on the mountain. And this is foreshadowing that man is always going to have the tendency to read remake the church in an unbiblical way. So God, the need to restore the church, the need to rebuild the church, the need to recover the pattern is always going to be in the church. And there will always be the Ezra's and the Nehemiah's who go back to rebuild. In the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, probably only around somewhere between 2 to 3%, maybe 4% of Israelites actually made the trip back to rebuild. Because whenever God is restoring and rebuilding, he, he calls a group of people to be the first wave of that and to reestablish the pattern. And then others will benefit from that pattern. In the book of Acts chapter 2, There were Hellenistic Jews uh, from every nation in the Roman Empire. 16 of them are listed there. And they were benefiting from something that happened centuries earlier when Ezra and Nehemiah led a troop of, of faithful Israelites back to Jerusalem, back to the city of God to rebuild the temple of God and rebuild the lifestyle of Israel under the kingship of Christ and under the lordship of God and so forth. And so, uh, to You know, that's, the spillover effect is always in the church. For instance, if you look at the outward forms of biblical worship, it includes dancing, shouting, laughing, clapping, laying prostrate before the Lord, and so forth. Well, uh, 50, 60 years ago, almost no Christians on planet Earth were doing that, uh, doing any of that. Uh, worship was... Considered to, uh, important to be quiet and reverent, and fold your hands, and, and uh, not be not singing any louder than like, you could be heard, or whatever, and uh, and uh, try to be as passive as you could, or whatever. And uh, none of that's really biblical, but that had become kind of the way the way people worship. And to this day, in our day and age, you know, as a result of the charismatic movement of the 60s and 70s, you probably won't find a church almost anywhere where you won't see a few people lifting their hands during the worship. Now, when I was a kid, you couldn't find that anywhere except in some Pentecostal churches. So there's always, as, as people restore various biblical truths, and patterns and so forth there's always spillover effects now what we're looking at tonight is there's we believe there's a pattern in the bible that when people came to god they they followed five initial steps and so that is really what point 7 of these 8 or element 7 of these 8 essential elements is all about the first five steps when you enter the kingdom of Christ. Today in America, we have a view of conversion that at best, most people get introduced to the doorway. Jesus said, I'm the door to the sheepfold. And people uh, stand at the doorway or near the doorway or maybe in the doorway, uh, but very few people venture into the kingdom uh, uh, in the temple of God and the lifestyle of God. So um, these steps are the initial steps you take to begin to to venture in. Now, um, they include receiving Jesus Christ, which we already talked about. Um, we talked uh, again; it's it, that has to do with regeneration, which is also called the new birth, being born again. It's called being made alive in Ephesians two and other places. Uh, in the King James, the word made alive is quickened, and it's the concept that we are born spiritually dead, and Jesus said in John 5, there a time will come when the dead, he's talking about the spiritual dead initially, will hear my voice, and those who hear it will live. What it means to really become a Christian is to begin to be able to hear God calling you, convicting of you of your sin, calling you into his life, calling you to become his follower, arriving at your tax booth and uh going going into pnc bank and turning over all the cashier t- no it's, no, i'm just kidding follow me and i'll make you a fisherman. ah no i'm just kidding so uh uh so uh he didn't turn over levi's booth actually uh nor 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 uh Zacchaeus's. but anyway, <laughs> it was actually the boost in the temple that he th- turned over, just so I'm just was just kidding. but uh, you know it means to uh, to receive a new heart, a new life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can't have that unless you were born again. God gives that's part of conversion is you start to hunger and thirst for righteousness and as you grow in Christ, that hunger and thirst will grow because you can grow any appetite. You want to become more of a sinner? Just sin more, and your hunger for sin will grow. Sin will take you further than you ever intended to go. It'll keep you longer than you intended to stay, and it'll make you pay more than you ever intended to pay. But likewise, you can build godly hungers. Our whole teaching called The Bible and the Importance of Bible Study starts with some three points about how to build a hunger for scripture. And a hunger is what you're hungering for is something you're always building or not building until you die. You know, one of the things the Lord has given me great hope help with since I come from a family of Several generations of very heavy people who like to eat a lot and so forth As little by little I've been able by the grace of God to change not only the quantities I'm hungering for but the what I'm hungering for. I frankly don't like sugar anymore. I don't like white flour. Uh, now if I can just overcome my l- love of french fries I'll be set free. <laughs> uh, and even then, I only really like ones cooked in peanut oil and stuff. I can't stand ones cooked in like pig fat and cow fat and all that stuff, tallow sticks. Um, so, uh, because I just don't have a taste for it anymore. And, you, you know, hungers are things you build. So, what we're looking at, again, is the, the, the pattern that people felt followed when they came into Christ. The first thing is they received Jesus. Now, here's something very important that, you have, that we have stressed. You must receive Jesus Christ before you can truly do any of the others. He's the doorway to the sheepfold. If you try to go in through performance-based Christianity, or you try to go through a view of Christology such as pseudo-Christian cults have, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or so forth, or Jesus is just a prophet like the Muslims, then Jesus says all of those are thieves and robbers. He says, "Unless you believe I am he's quoting Exodus three fourteen, "I am that I am." You'll die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. So you must receive Jesus Christ, because you can't go in. You can't climb in the window to get into the kingdom. You have to go through the door. And one of the things that we're always up against in our day and age is it's getting very difficult because of all the religious confusion to find out whether people um, have truly been converted or not, or whether uh, their, their issues are sanctification and maturing issues, because after you're born again and after you're converted, you begin to be set apart, sanctified, and you begin to mature into Christ. And where those lines overlap, it's kind of like in the car where, you know, the cold starts with blue and it gets progressively toward light blue to white and, and the hot is red and it gets progress toward pink and then white and they kind of overlap. Sometimes the, we have so much confusion in, in spiritual matters in our day and age that the line of where those stop and start has become very blurred for most people. And what's interesting is the vast majority of people who've grown up in so-called Bible-believing churches that have entered our doors have been, by any definition, false converts, and have needed to be converted to the true gospel. So um, that's uh, that's you know characteristic of our time period. that's why clear teaching on all this kind of stuff is very important. Now, we would submit that once a person has received Jesus Christ, these other four, the other four of the five can be done in any order. And in fact, number five, which is to begin to enter a new covenant kingdom lifestyle Uh, which includes two directions. You know, a lot of people use the analogy of the cross as a vertical and a horizontal direction. Vertically, a person begins that that is being born again and, and converted and begins to progress towards sanctification and maturity, they begin to embrace a lifestyle of daily spiritual disciplines, the first and foremost of which is reading the scriptures. Prayer. Individual prayer, small group prayer. Individual Bible study, small group Bible study. Fastings. Solitude. Out loud praise and prayer. You want to revolutionize your Christian life? Go from listening to CDs and letting someone else carry the momentum of your of your worship times to actually singing yourself and singing out loud and singing in English and singing in tongues and... and and uh, uh, you, and the, the passivity that starts to break out of your life and the, the the muscle, like all muscle is built by repeated exercise. If you begin to be an out loud singer and praiser of Christian songs and worship songs to God, the, how that will stir up a, an active seeking of God in your life as a posture is amazing. I can think of almost nothing better. For a young Christian to do, then then uh, learn to sing in the sh- songs of worship and praise in the shower, in the car. Just don't close your eyes when you're singing in the car. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, go for walks in the woods and sing songs of worship and praise or what have you. All right, now, uh, so... These other four, water baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit, deliverance and healings, and a new covenant kingdom lifestyle can happen in any order. We started talking about a new covenant kingdom lifestyle, so let me finish that thought. You can, um, again, the one part of that is the vertical dimension of spiritual disciplines before God. The second part of that is communal disciplines or church disciplines of confessing your sins, getting discipled by an older Christian, The Lord's Day, attending the, putting a high priority on the Lord's Day, uh, and other gatherings of the church throughout the week. You know, we could say a lot about that. Now, because of the analogy Jesus uses in John 3, that you must be born out of water the first time and out of the Spirit the second time, most people are actually doing number five at the point where they receive Christ. But nevertheless, reading the word, let you know John Bradbury sitting right to my right here, uh, who we dearly love. Uh, before he prayed to receive Christ, he was reading the word. He God was birthing in his heart a hunger and thirst for righteousness. He was wanting to give up his ungodly lifestyle and become more godly. He was, uh, and I, I would say that he was born again, uh, and then he needed to be converted to uh, to to ceasing his strivings to seek, in other words, to trust God for righteousness and to come into a grace-based pursuit of God instead of a performance-based and so forth. But that was a process in his life born out of being a part of a people that are filled with the Spirit. That's why if if you're going to lead people to Christ, I don't even bother after a while if they're not coming on our turf. If I'm having Bible studies with people and so forth, but they're not starting to come to fellowship, then I usually conclude God's not drawing them. They'll they'll like to be around the saints. So at what point did they, but they're really, if you can get away from this instantaneous view of receiving Jesus Christ, you can also understand as they're coming through the doorway of Christ, uh, they do begin to enter a Christian lifestyle including uh, wanting to be in fellowship. So, but in in a sense, you're not really fully a member until you've gone through the covenant door of receiving Jesus Christ in full. To those who received him, John chapter one, he gave the exousia the power and authority to become the children of God and you get, you're welcomed into the family through Christ. Now, some of these other things are, are, are family things that you experience when you come in. So let's look at water baptism tonight uh, out of all of these others. And we're going to start by reading Acts 2, uh, 37 through 42. Now, the context is on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. That's Acts 2-1. That was the first miracle. Everyone showed up for the meeting. Is that a, and, and it is kind of amazing. We've actually had a few times where no one was missing on, a, on the Lord's Day, and the meeting is always way more anointed. <laughs> but, uh, because like, it, to get everyone to show up for the meeting shows that everyone is prioritizing something important. And uh, so that's the first miracle. They were, in the King James, it says they were all together in one accord. Now, a Honda Accord, I don't know how 120 people fit, fit into one accord, but, uh, but they did. But uh, <laughs> that's an overly literal translation. That's kind of like how they do Revelation nowadays. <laughs> One Honda Accord. No, they were all together in one accord. And uh, the Holy Spirit descended, tongues of fire, mighty wind, all that. They all began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them ability to speak, verse 4. And all these people come rushing up who were in Jerusalem for Passover, uh, for, I mean, for Pentecost and the Feast of Booths. And so they, uh, you know, they, they accused them of being drunk. I love that the first line, the first line of any Christian sermon of all of all time, was "These men are not drunk as you suppose, <laughs> for it's only nine o'clock in the morning." I'm like, things have got to get better from here on out. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what a start! And then uh, from there, he preaches basically a, a message where he says, "You guys have been anticipating uh, uh, Emmanuel." the Lord with us, Yahweh with us, and you've been anticipating Messiah, or in the Greek, Christos, it didn't occur to you that these were actually going to be one and the same pe- people. But God has now made it manifest that Jesus is both the Lord you've been looking for and the Christ you've been looking for. And they, he, uh, he did such a powerful job of it that they all realize it. And they go, everything we've been grown, grown up hoping for, we killed them. It's kind of like a churchgoer who really has nothing really going on with God, which happens all the time, getting their eyes open to the fact that, oh my gosh, I've gone to church all my life, but I'm actually using it to run from God. And these guys realize they've they that they've killed the very th- hope that they've been waiting for, and so in verse 36, it says they were pierced to the heart or cut to the quick in the King James, I think. Uh, they, and, they, uh, you know, and remember the angel had told Mary that what part of the ministry of Jesus would be the, that a sword would pierce her own heart to the end, that the thoughts of many heart would be revealed. Their thoughts are revealed. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the, how the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. The word of God just cuts them. And they say, "What must we do?" That's when people are really ready to hear the to to receive Christ. When they're basically willing, they're saying, "Okay, what must I do?" When they're not fighting your counsel or doing some other counsel or doing whatever they want to do anymore, they're, when they're basically saying, "Okay, I'll sign. Where do I sign?" And and you you almost want to say, "Like, don't you want to read the contract first? <laughs> no, I don't. I'll just sign. <laughs> Because, you know, you're going to be reading the contract the rest of your life anyway (laughs) and uh, and making changes accordingly. So uh, that's really what these guys are saying. Hey, where do we sign up? And that's what a true convert is. So that's the context for verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what what shall we do? Peter applied three things. Repent which if you take the whole essence of conversion, repent and believe is always tied together in the scriptures that's uh, receiving Christ is what he's saying be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that's water baptism that we're going to look at tonight and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit That is that is the same gift they had just received with the accompanying gift of all of them speaking in tongues and then he says the promise which if you go back and Look at Luke 24 and Acts 1, and you go back to Old Testament prophecies. The promise is that God would put his spirit within them and write his laws on their heart and make a new covenant. And the baptism in the Holy Spirit is the sealing. Remember the eight uh, um, aspects of all covenants. All covenants have signs and ceremonies, and and they have sanctions, and they have... Uh, law and so forth that one of the things that all covenants have is a seal and the baptism in the holy spirit is the seal of the covenant then like in ancient times when a king put his seal on something it could not be changed or altered there's several important bible studies in the old testament like Daniel with the lions den and in the book of Esther uh if you don't know if you, you know if you don't know the stories read them book of Daniel book of Esther And you'll see that like when a a king put a seal to something, it was irrevocable after that. And the baptism in the Holy Spirit becomes the guarantee of a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. It's a sealing of the covenant, as is water baptism. And we're going to look at how the two are one. One of the things that we're going to get at later tonight is in baptism, we discover a Christian principle that runs through the whole Bible of the one in the many to understand things right. Biblically, there are always counterbalancing truths. So do we worship, you know, like that's Muslims can't understand that. So in, in Islam, if you believe there's one God, you'll be saved. And so the, many a Muslim will talk to a Christian and uh, Ned Barubi tells a funny story about how they used to open up their house to exchange students. And they'd have like a Muslim live in there and they would talk about the Lord and the, and the Muslim guy would go, Ned, do you believe there's only one God? And Ned said, oh, yes, I believe that. And, he, and he'd go, good, you'll be saved. And then he'd say, and I believe that he eternally existed in three persons. And he'd go, no, no, <laughs> Ned, you cannot believe this. <laughs> because, uh, of course, natural-minded man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they're spiritually discerned. But our God is an eternally existent one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are one being. <laughs> and uh our our Lord Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man in such a way that the two natures are not distinct or not uh confused I'm saying but uh but perfectly combined into one person not two. And uh <laughs> you know that's just biblical math. If you do much biblical math you probably won't pa- pass calculus 3. But uh <laughs> not don't, do, don't use biblical math on calculus three. Although you might, if you get the answer wrong, you might try arguing that with your professor and see how far you get. But uh, <laughs> probably not. So we're going to look at how the two are one in this issue of baptisms tonight. Uh, and of course, after they did these three steps, um, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. This is not about all corrupt generations Every prophecy in Scripture has multiple fulfillments, but so in a sense, it, it's in an warning to get to get delivered from the world. But this, he's saying, this was a particularly corrupt generation, and Jesus had prophesied in Matthew twenty four and twenty five, and in Mark thirteen, uh, he had prophesied that, that. Of course, those hadn't been written yet, but they, but he had already, Jesus had already spoken them in his famous Mount Olive's uh, discourse or sermon. And he had basically said, this generation will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled. And God was bringing the full wrath of God upon his natural people, Israel, and birthing a new Israel of God. And this was the beginning of that. And he's saying, leave the perverse generation of Israel and come join the perverse, gener- the non-perverse, I'm sorry, the sanctified generation, to- Almost blessing uh, and of Christ and jo- joined the real family of God, the real covenant nation of God. So and then uh, notice, after this, those who accepted his message were baptized. Uh, that is water baptism. And about 3,000 were added to that number that day. I believe they were also baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, that's, uh, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, breaking, prayer. There was a lifestyle among them. This is that point five, a new covenant kingdom lifestyle. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And in verse 47, God added to the numbers day by day, those who were being saved, And this is how it should be. Now, let's start by, as we look at uh, the the word baptism in the New Testament, what does it mean? Now, primarily, baptism means to dip or to immerse. Now, however, this is a point that a lot of people, we're going to talk about believer's baptism versus infant baptism later tonight. And a lot of people make the point, uh, and we're going to talk about modes of baptism, so a lot of people are basically saying, you have to be baptized by immersion. Um, but look, look at Matthew fifteen two, when it says, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. The word there for wash is baptism. And even in Hebrews sixteen, one and two, or Hebrews sixteen, Hebrews six one and two, I gotta quit stumbling over my words tonight. Hebrews six one and two, uh when it's listing six foundations of the faith, the first is repentance from dead works, the second is faith toward God, the third is instruction about baptisms, the Greek word is plural. We'll look at that in more detail later. But the New American Standard, the, probably the most literal of, of, of all English translations, translates that word washings. And so, um, again, our view would be we're going to look at the mode of baptism. We baptize by immersion, but we wouldn't fight about it. And we would say there's definite times when you, should, then, when you can pour water over someone's head, such as when they're, you lead them to Christ on their deathbed in the hospital. Are we going to say, uh, gee, they weren't baptized by immersion? So, uh, you know, well, that might not have been practical as you lead them to Christ in their last moments of their life. So um, we'll look at that in more detail as we go. But the, in general, the word baptize means to submerge, dip, or immerse. It can be translated wash, but in any any case, it, even if it is wash, it's a thorough thing. The 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 actual the 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 the, 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 the Pharisees and the elders of Israel, and they they actually would dip the pots and pans in water. And so the 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 most literal meaning is to dip or to immerse. Now, um, we'll get back to wh- whose name and what formula at the end. But what I want to get into first is five biblical reasons or understandings of why, why should we get water baptized upon receiving Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, I want you to understand something, that in the New Testament, we see primarily people getting water baptized upon their receiving Jesus Christ immediately. You see that over and over. You see that in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, Acts 16, Acts 19, etc. There's seven examples of people being water baptized immediately upon their trusting in Christ in the book of Acts. People who are aware of church history will begin to realize that as early as the second century the church began to require a catechism process before they could get water baptized. And uh, your average fundamentalist would say, see, that's when they left the biblical pattern. And believe me, I do believe the new Testament is, is the primary pattern, but I want to, whenever something differs in church history, I want to say why. And uh, this is really what began to happen in the early church. Most converts came out of three groups of people. One, Jews, who are already Yahwehist and already live in the Ten Commandments, and upon their profession of faith in Christ, like Paul, began to totally live the Christian lifestyle. Paul went from a hater of Jesus to a follower of Jesus, preaching Jesus in a three-day period. Right? One three day long experience and he became uh a proclaimer of Christ. And 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 it was so quick that when he went back to Jerusalem, the Christians were afraid to associate with him. They'd heard that this had happened to Paul, but they weren't quite trusting. They thought maybe this is like he's infiltrating us as a secret agent and he's gonna really kill us, right? Remember? It says that in the book of Acts. I, I mean, I kind of modernized it a little bit, but uh <laughs> this doesn't say he's going but they were afraid of him. So, um, um, in, why did they start doing this? Well, again, the first group of converts was usually uh, Jewish people. The second group was, was Hellenized Jews. And the Hellenized Jews fall into two interesting categories of people one, those who were born Jewish, like Paul, but raised in other parts of the Roman Empire, and they had, therefore, Greek and Latin education. And, and they were raised like Paul in all the education of the Greek and Roman philosophers and, and so forth, as well as a uh, completely uh, Old Testament, that is, Hebrew Scripture education. That is primarily who is in, the, in, in Acts chapter 2. But there was a second group of Hellenized Jews, which were people who were not born biologically Jewish, but had converted to Jewish Judaism. And that actually began to happen after Alexander the Great in approximately 333 B.C. uh, He went on a 10-year conquering campaign uh, that, interestingly, conquered all the way to what's today India, all the way to what's today Libya, uh, all through the Middle East, and all of of the Greek peninsula and so forth conquered a lot of the known world at that time in a 10-year period. And then uh, he actually uh, died of syphilis at age 30 because, like so many, he could conquer the world, but he could not conquer himself and, uh, in his own appetites. And so, um, lesson, you know, a great history lesson for us all. And, uh, um, but Alexander, having been tutored by his private tutor called Aristotle, many of you know Aristotle, uh, Aristotle raised Alexander with a vision to unite the world in one culture. And so he, they, had a, uh, they were the first uh, conquerors to put this in mass force. They allowed each nation to keep their own language as long as they also learned Greek. They allowed them to keep their own culture and, and customs as long as they also learned Greek culture. They were allowed to keep their own gods as long as the emperor was the head god. <laughs> And the Romans followed that idea. It's said that the Romans conquered the Greeks militarily and the Greeks conquered the Romans philosophically. The Romans exalted Caesar as king of kings and lord of lords. And as long as you were willing to, to worship the Caesar as the one true only God, you were allowed to keep your other gods. That's why Israel always ran into trouble with Rome. And that's why eventually the early church total, totally ran into trouble with Rome that lasted for almost three full centuries. From 64 AD all the way to 313 AD, you do the math, that's 265 years or something. But uh, 68 years, something like that. But um, so... Um, though, during that time period the synagogue system began to emerge uh Israel went through a series of dispersions the first one was the the conquering of the northern kingdom and the in the taking off of the northern kingdom into exile in 722 BC and they settled among the what's today Iraq and among the the Babylonians and eventually the, they were conquered by the Medes and the Persian and they began to populate that part of the world after Alexander, they began to populate what is now Greece, Turkey, and Egypt, and the Israelites didn't believe they could sacrifice anywhere except the temple, but they did believe that they could gather together to read the scriptures, to teach each other the scriptures, to worship, fellowship, and eat covenant meals together, and the synagogue actually became the precursor of the church, and many many pagans began to convert to Judaism even before Christ because of the superiority of the Ten Commandments and a culture that was falling apart from its own immorality. There's a reason why many of the more moralistic conservative churches of today that aren't necessarily grace-based and really don't have much biblical reality in, in them are, are growing. While the liberal uh, higher criticism churches that don't, don't accept the miracles of the Bible, nor, nor the commandments, nor, nor morals, and, and, and as far as morals goes, anything goes, and so forth, those are shrinking in mass. And the same sort of thing was happening. Many people were being attracted to Israel. And so there were many Hellenized Jews that were converts to Judaism. And that was a growing movement. Then there was a third category of people called God-fearers. God-fearers were primarily Roman military men who believed the God of Israel was true and the synagogue, the Jews' morality was superior, but weren't willing to convert because the political cost would be too high for them. We encounter several of those in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. That's who Cornelius is in the book of Acts. That's who the centurion that comes to Jesus is. He's a God-fearer. And remember, they testify about him when he comes to Jesus and wants his servant healed. The, the Jewish leaders say, this guy built our synagogue, you know, our synagogue for us and so forth. He's, he's you know, helped us a lot. He's protected us from the cruelty of Rome. He's a pretty good guy. They're appealing to Jesus that he deserves it, <laughs> right? Now, that's important to understand. I know that's a long explanation. I probably shouldn't have gone into all that on a, on a CD we're going to use for water baptism. Uh, but it's important to understand that because most converts to, to, to Christ were among those three groups of people in the early decades, progressively, by the time the second century hits, more and more pagans are coming to Christ. And more and more, it becomes a little bit unclear, is this person really uh, come to Christ or not? So the church begins to add some intermediary steps to make sure that there really is true faith. And a whole body of literature that, is, that begins to grow up on true and false conversion. And you can read about true and false conversion by the, from the church fathers of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century. The Puritans wrote a great, great deal on true and false con- conversion. Even what's known as the Arminians, like uh, Jan- Charles Finney wrote a book on true and false conversion. And true and false conversion has become has been an issue in the church ever since. And we actually see true and false conversion in the book of Acts because in a- Acts chapter 8, Simon the musician says he believes and is even accepted for water baptism, but then in fact he didn't really believe, and he wants to buy the gift of God with money. Right? And he was actually a false convert. And Peter actually curses him. <laughs> says, May your silver and perish money, you know, but silver and gold perish with you. Your heart's not right within you. You're not, you haven't received a new heart. You haven't been converted. So the church actually began a practice where when someone wanted to come to, to the Lord, they actually had to declare their intention to the elders of the local church. They, the elders would leave them in prayers to renounce Satan, his demons, and all false idols. They had to de- agree to give up all sexual immorality, all idol worship, including emperor worship, including uh, being a liberal politician, you might say, in our day and age, including believing the state can save you and that the government should plan the economy and so forth. That would help a lot. But, uh, (laughs) and uh, uh, so, um, so just so you know that, that's something that, that is an issue and has been an issue. How do we make sure that people who are getting, like in a lot of evangelicalism today, there's sort of a get a notch on your belt uh, mentality. And so you're wanting to pray the sinner's prayer with as many people as possible, irrespective of how much they're under conviction and so forth. You can study Whitfield and, and even Finney and some, they they actually used to have what they called conviction rooms. They'd say, you're not ready to receive Christ. You're not under deep enough conviction. <laughs> yeah and and therefore your repentance won't be full. And the early church dealt with that in the second, third, and fourth century. Uh, Also, they would lead them in prayers renouncing Satan and his kingdom and and all these things. And that became part of the, the baptismal prayers. Now, I don't want to get too much into true and false conversion tonight. We've dealt with that a lot in our teachings over the years, but I wanted to at least bring that up. So with the idea of true conversion, uh, what are the meanings of, of Christian water baptism? To someone who uh, we have, are discerning as a body of Christians and as elders of the church, that this person is really been being drawn to God and he's really um, uh, received new life in his spirit, and he's really repented of his sins, and he's really renounced and disavowed his covenants, illegal soul ties, and his covenants with evil, all of which doesn't happen a lot today in in conversion. So here they are, five biblical reasons for water baptism. A, I'll label maybe A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, one of the, it's one of the first acts of obedience in the Christian life. If you study things from a covenant point of view, what God promised in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, some verses that every Christian should have memorized, he promised a new covenant to the house of Israel that he would put his law within their hearts and his spirit within them And they would not have to teach everyone, know the Lord, for they would all know me from the least to the greatest. And the Bible says in 1 John 2, 6, that if anyone says he knows Jesus, he ought also to walk in the manner Jesus walks. So is there those five vital signs of life that we teach? If those things are happening, It's one of the first obedience, the first acts you can do to say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to let you define reality and define covenant to me. All covenants have ceremonies of enactment and all covenants have uh, ceremonies of reinvigorating or reinforcement. Uh, that like in marriage, you have the the you have the wedding ceremony with the vows before the people of God and the presence of God and so forth, and the pronunciation that they're man and wife, and you also have the sexual act. This is why any time you engage in sexual acts that aren't involved in marriage, there's so much demonicness and damage, and and you're just destroying yourself and the other person, and it's just horrible. So, again, one of the first acts of obedience in the Christian life. Let's look at a couple of verses. Mark 16, 15 through 17, he's, and Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. Now, St. Francis of Assisi took that so far as he believed he sh- it was okay to preach the gospel to the creation. He'd go out in the woods and preach to the trees, the birds, and everything. And I actually don't think he's crazy. I believe that when, you, when we're worshiping, we're really proclaiming the things of the gospel in heavenly places. Ephesians 3.10 talks about how the manifold wisdom of God might be made known in the heavenly places through the church. So I actually believe that whenever you're preaching, so if you if you feel called to, to be a proclaimer of God's kingdom and a teacher of God's word, I think it's fine to practice in your room. <laughs> go out in the woods and practice. <laughs> preach the gospel to people. <laughs> you know, get take a couple friends to sit there and say and role play and preach the gospel to them. Why not? Uh so go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to all creatures or all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Now, some people twist this to say that if you didn't get water baptized before you died, you won't be saved, you know. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. But he's implying that if you actually believe, then you'll be baptized. These signs will accompany those who have believed in my name, they'll cast out demons, they'll speak with new tongues, and all sorts of other things. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, uh, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me not some of it. Go therefore, that's why we can go. We're not going with a theory. We're not going asking them to intellectually assent to certain truths. We're going with them to declare reality. This Jesus has been raised from the dead, and God has made it manifest that he is both the Lord and the Christ, and he is seated at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning in the universe right now, are you going to get on the right side of history, or is history going to crush you? Go, that's a different gospel, is it? <laughs> that's the real gospel. So if um, you can flee from the wrath of God in Christ. So go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Uh, if it's not too inconvenient, you might want to consider possibly baptizing them in the name of does, is that how it I I kind of forgot that's the modern translation. Uh baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I'm with you always unto the end of the age. There's an old joke. That's why some people are afraid to fly, because Jesus only said, Lo, I'm with you, always to the end of the age. But uh he didn't say hi, but uh That's a stupid old joke. But uh, in any case, um, I wonder if sometimes we'd have less of a sense of God being with us because he says, I'm with you to the end of the age in the context of fulfilling the Great Commission. You You look at any church that's starting to dry up in its zeal, in its worship, if there's less anointing on the worship and praise, there's less anointing at the prayer meetings, there's less people willing to come to the prayer meetings. It's because they've lost the focus of fulfilling the great commission together as a people. That's how Christianity died in Europe. When it lost its thrust for evangelism, it, it crumbled in a few generations. And American Christianity is at that crossroads right now. English Christianity and American Christianity birthed the worldwide missions movement. And I would argue that we exported our reductionist, unhealthy, uh, dispensational, (laughs) neo-gnostic, wrong wrong in so many ways Christianity to the world, but at least we were doing it. And uh, and at least there, were, Jesus has promised to be with us if we're doing that. Acts eight thirty four through thirty nine is a great verse. The youth eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, who Philip is, you know, he's reading Isaiah fifty three. Talk about getting us, uh, you know, and when. when uh, When Cal Ripken broke the record of the most games played in a row, the pitcher uh, that night threw him a nice easy one so he could hit a homer. (laughs) And that's a common practice in baseball. I mean, uh, et cetera. So, um, you know, it's interesting that God takes this, takes Philip and he. Puts him down by this Ethiopian court official, and the the guy's reading the Old Testament. He said, what is he reading? He's reading Isaiah 53, probably the easiest chapter of the Old Testament to preach Christ out of. And uh, God gave Philip a soft one. Philip hit it out of the park. So uh, I'm just adding a little color to your interpretation there. But uh, the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, that is Isaiah 53, he proclaimed Jesus to him. And they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, it's not even clear if, if Philip said anything about water baptism. I actually suspect that because he'd been in Jerusalem a while, he knew the Christians were doing that. One of the signs of true conversion is people start asking you, When can I get water baptized? And start bugging you and sending you a text. Can I get on a rapture? And Philip said, Well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they went down, both went down in the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snapped Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Guess that ended that meeting. But, uh, uh, but the point remains one of the first acts of obedience in the Christian life. I've, uh, ne- never seen uh water baptism where the guy who did the baptizing disappeared after afterward, but, but, uh, but as long as the water baptism was concluded, then that will conclude our service for today. I <laughs> don't conclude our baptismal service for today because the baptizer guy just left. <laughs> All right. So, uh, B, it's the practice of the early church. Now, there's nine examples from the book of Acts. Um, I misspoke and said seven earlier. I forgot uh, out of date here. And they all happen soon after conversion. Now, we already read Acts 2, 37 through 39, so let's jump down to Acts. uh, Of course, uh, we've already referred to Acts 8. Acts 9 is the conversion of Paul. If you want to read Acts 9, uh, well, if you want to read Acts 8, start in verse 4. Read through at least verse 20. If you want to read Acts 9, start at the beginning and read at least through verse 20. But if you remember, after Jesus appears to Paul, it says that a bright light appeared to him. He was knocked off his donkey and onto his ass. And uh, <laughs> and uh, no, off his ass, onto his knees, in, in, for, in front of Christ. And, uh, and, and interestingly, he, Jesus doesn't say, who art thou, bub? Like, what's going on here? He understands right from the beginning, he's being encountered by the living God. And he says, who are you, Lord? And I don't think Paul was expecting this answer, but Paul, he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And, and, and uh, I would love to see the actual video of this when we go to heaven, we probably wouldn't get to. But Paul might have said, uh-oh. oh <laughs> This, this totally interrupts my plans. <laughs> uh, I don't know what he, but he, you know, he goes on to uh, tell him, I'm Jesus whom they're persecuting. Get up, go into the city. You'll meet a guy and he'll pray for you and so forth. And he you, you tells him he's going to become how much he must suffer for his namesake and begins to tell him he's going to be the apostle of the Gentiles. Now, to get Paul's full testimony, you have to get. When he tells it to Felix and Agrippa and when he read in, in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, when he tells his testimony and piece all that together, because Acts 9 doesn't give you as much detail as Paul later gives you about that encounter. But nevertheless, when, when um, Ananias comes to Paul after three days of Paul fasting, he's blind. He heals them. He heals him. Five, you know, Step four deliverance and healing. Scales fall off his eyes, his eyes are healed. And of course, that's all biblical imagery on purpose that God is doing. We talk all the time about how God is sovereign enough to do biblical imagery in the actual events of history. Paul thought he could see, but he was actually blind. When Christ appears to him for the first time, he can see and he becomes blind. (laughs) And then when when, uh, he's covenantally transferred into the kingdom through Water baptism, God heals him. He's water baptized and filled with and baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he immediately begins to enter a kingdom lifestyle and proclaim Christ. And we see Paul. So we see. If you really look at it closely, you see over and over again people going through these five steps. Acts ten forty four through 48 is a great one. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Of course, this is Cornelius and the Gentiles. All the circumcised believers, that is the Jewish believers who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out. So it's interesting that this phrase poured out. Uh, well, if you study the doctrine of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Scripture only says baptized seven times in the New Testament, but it says poured out and filled with many times. And poured out um, is what happens in in you know that some Christians actually baptized by pouring water on you, and uh, and I always tell people if you're an immersion baptizer, you can get immersed from above. You can stand in the water, and we'll dunk you, and that's how we do it. Or uh, I can also I can hold you under Niagara Falls, (laughs) and you'll be baptized from above, and it'll be poured out on you. Uh, Of course, I'm not very strong, so I'll probably let go, and (laughs) you'll be killed. But at least you'll be going to see Christ. But uh, (laughs) immediate delivery. But uh, (laughs) no, uh, but, you know, so um, poured out. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were, how did they know? For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. That's how they knew. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did Kenny. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now, this is very important to understand. In this case, baptism in the Spirit precedes baptism in water. And you might ask, well, why? When in the other cases, baptism in water uh, happens first. First of all, remember that it can happen in any order, but receiving Jesus Christ has to happen first. And it's clear if you look at the whole context of Acts 10 the angels that appear to Cornelius and he sends for Peter and the vision Peter has great faith is emerging these people were born their spirit was quickened and and born again and they were converted during the message we have this altar call mentality that you can't be converted till you actually respond to the altar call and pray not really that's just a formalizing of what actually got they they get converted when they hear the message i have been very aware sometimes when i been having a Bible study with someone and sharing the gospel with them that they were converted right as we were doing the Bible study, that their spirit was quickened, they began to hear God, they were filled with joy and and so forth. And I had one particular case where the person said, wow, I, they had really battled with depression to the point of going to psychologists and considering using drugs and so forth. And and they said, man, when, when you were preaching the gospel to me and I got excited about following Christ, I, that's, I've never been so happy for the next couple of weeks. I've got to, uh move on. So, uh, Acts 16 is the, the Philippian jailer. Uh, I probably should, should basically finish Acts 10 real quick. Um, the point is this, um, I believe God sovereignly baptized him in the Holy Spirit because the New Testament apostles saw the, the the evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit for they heard them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And I, sad to say, but a religion can, can put powerful blinders in our life. And Peter, the greatest apostle in the church at that time, Paul is just beginning to to walk with God and so forth, Still has no room in his thinking that this message of the kingdom is for everyone. They were able to kind of they sent Peter and John to see what what uh, was happening in, in Samaria, and they were kind of say, well, you know, the Samarians are sort of half biologically Jews and so so forth. But now God is moving among people who have no biological heritage with Abraham, and th- the Jews actually had so missed the the whole message of the Old Testament. About the coastland and the Gentiles and the nations and so forth, a major major idea of the Old Testament they had didn't have in their reference point now if you've studied much about Bible believing fundamental evangelical Christianity in our day today, it probably won't surprise you that Bible believing Christians can be missing big, big big parts of the whole message. And so God sovereignly baptizes them in the Holy Spirit because as we're going to see, baptism in water and baptism in, co- in the Spirit are two baptisms that are one, and they are a covenant sh- ceremony. They're, they're, they're as important as the wedding ceremony is to marriage. If you uh, Sex outside of a wedding ceremony is cheap, tawdry, shameful, and, and damaging, in you know, if you take the if you take the Lord's table, and you haven't received Christ, uh, you're you're really renewing a covenant that you don't exist. And Paul says that 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 the reason some of you are sick and some of you are dying is because you're eating the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And what makes you worthy is trusting in Christ. We don't come based on I had a really holy week this week. I read a lot of Bible and feeling really good about my Christian walk and so forth. No. We come uh because he 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 is our substitute and he is our justification. Alright, so Acts six, uh, the Phil- is the story of Paul in jail, and they're locked in and you know, they begin to sing praises to God. What will we do if we were in jail? Um, and they're worshiping, and the earthquake happens, and and the Philippian j- jailer's gonna kill himself, because in in uh that culture, if you lost a prisoner, they would execute you, so he's basically uh gonna execute himself. And uh Paul stops him from doing that, leads him to Christ, and that very hour, in the middle of the night, they got water baptized. Because Paul was saying their conversion's genuine. And as a representative of Christ, I'm putting my seal on this, and I'm allowing them to be water baptized. Which leads to the third thing. the th- Point C, water baptism is public identification with Jesus and his people. Now, I don't have time to read Romans 6, but Romans 6 gives us quite a bit of the meaning of of baptism and how we are, we are to reckon ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God through, through our entering the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my word in this sinful and adulterous generation, I'll be ashamed of you. But if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. And water baptism is the one of the first ways you can confess Christ before men. And I always say, if you can't do it through in front of a bunch of uh, church members that are rooting for you, how are you going to do it at work or wherever else you're challenged? I like having water baptisms at public places like lakes and rivers and so forth. Because there's always a few unbelievers around, and I, I kind of like the thing when they're looking at what, what are those weird people doing? <laughs> like, we're loving Jesus, you want to join us? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, we got really good chicken afterwards, and I always like to combine water baptisms with picnics whenever possible. But because uh, <laughs> it's a celebration, it's a covenant celebration. <laughs> Whoever gets water baptized should be first in line for hamburgers. Uh, (laughs) So Colossians 2.12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 1 Peter 3.21, corresponding to them, that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. But baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before we come to Christ, part of what needs to be restored is our conscience is defiled. And it bothers us about things it shouldn't bother us about. And it doesn't bother us enough about things that God majorly cares about. And what part of what you're saying in receiving Christ and, and appealing, seeking God and spiritual disciplines and in water baptism is cleanse my conscience. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow, as Isaiah said. Isaiah 1. Public identification with Jesus. Fourthly, biblical imagery. Now, uh, all through the Bible, God does things in history to foreshadow the things that he does in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2 says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Moses talks about how he's a foreshadowing of Christ and God will raise up a great prophet and you will listen to him. And then he says, it shall come about, this is very important, Moses says, it'll come about that whoever not listened to that prophet will be cut off from his people. That's exactly what happened in the destruction of Jerusalem in 67 to 70 AD. Whoever had not received the message, God gave Israel one final generation in Christ and the apostles. And they chased the apostles from city to city and hounded them and persecuted them and killed them. And God made them pay We have we have a view of God that doesn't take sin very seriously or God's holiness very seriously in our culture, and that is is costing the church. That's why our churches are lukewarm and everybody's compromised and so forth. You know what? God'll kill you. In in love, of course. He chastises every son he receives. The difference for a Christian is we pass out of a judgment of condemnation and 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 wrath into a judgment of sanctification and discipline and chastising. Right? Spare the rod and spoil the child. God wrote that. And God does that faithfully in our Christian life. Okay. So again, uh for you can there's a couple other scriptures you can look at there, 1 Peter 4 and at 2 Timothy 2, Uh, but biblical imagery, Exodus 14, Exodus 14 is all about, you know, Exodus 12, the Passover lamb is about, is a foreshadowing of receiving Christ. He's, John the Baptist calls him the lamb of the, of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? After the, the, the Passover, where God slays all the firstborn of Egypt, which is symbolic biblically, the first, the tithing is symbolic of the whole. When you tithe your money to God, you say, Lord, you are my Lord, all of, all of whom I am belongs to you. It's all your money, help me steward the rest wisely. When you, uh, the, they dedicated the firstborn to say, all the family is God's family, and so forth. Um, I may have to make a separate CD for some of the four issues that I want to get to. Uh, But in any case, in fact, I think I'll do that. So let's look at 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5. But in Exodus 14, remember, uh, so after after they begin their journey with God, which is is symbolic of being born again, and God forms them into one nation, the nation... The Bible's never as individualistic as modern Christianity. The nation goes through uh, the Red Sea, right? And when Pharaoh and his horses try, they are drowned, right? So uh, water baptism is basically saying, I'm leaving illegal soul ties behind. I'm leaving my sins behind. I'm leaving all my covenants with the world, the flesh, and the devil behind. And they're not going to be able to follow through. The, they're not going to be able to chase me through the cross of Christ to the other side. It's beautiful biblical imagery. 1 Peter chapter 4, 1-5, uh, through five, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Baptism is about ceasing from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the in the flesh, the rest of your life, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already is past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, bars and all that, carousals, drinking, parties, and abominable idolatries. You've you've already lived you know, most of us have already had our share of that is what he's saying. In, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them. They're like, dude, well, why don't you want to get high anymore? Uh, in the same excess of dissipation. Dissipation, dissipation means the, the same excess of wasting your life. What's amazing to me is I'll meet guys that are 20, 25, 30, 40, 55. Uh, you know, I'm, And it's amazing that in certain areas of their life, they'll be like a little kid because their their life is just being wasted um, and they so and they malign you and say like hey man why don't you want to go party with us anymore uh, they malign you for not wanting to enter into their excess a dissipation of wastefulness but they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead and the gospel okay so that, that's, the, that's the imagery of baptism. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, 21-26 says, Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now free, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness. You don't, you don't just lollygag into righteousness or character. You've got to flee lack of character, and you've got to pursue character. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing they produce quarrel, and the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. In other words, you need to know what you're talking about. Patient or wrong with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, Leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. Remember how the prodigal son says he came to his senses, right? In a, the the world is living in senselessness. You know, it's amazing that Christians are intimidated by worldly people, and it's like they're they're living in total ridiculous foolishness. Uh, an escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. Water baptism is is about all of that appealing to God for a good conscience and so forth, uh, we were you know they were baptized, they left Egypt and they went through the sea and were baptized into a new covenant community with Moses as their head, as Christ is now our head lastly covenant we 've already talked about this, but we uh we remember our teaching. In the Kingdom of God series, chapter 3, when we looked at major biblical themes, one of which was eight aspects of all covenants, I have about four of them listed below, but covenants have terms, signs, seals, ceremonies, and um, there's terms and conditions. You can accept it, reject it, but you can't alter it. The essence of American Christianity is trying to rewrite the covenant all the time, trying to make God conform to our word. Signs and seals, all covenants have things like rings and the seal of the king and so forth. And water baptism is the seal of the covenant, and baptism in the Holy Spirit is the seal of the covenant. Thirdly, all covenants have ceremonies of enactment and reenactment or reinforcing or reinvigorating. We talked about that with the marriage covenant in Christian uh, of, of all the sacraments, whatever you believe about two sacraments as the Protestants or seven sacraments as the Catholics, and I am probably closer to the Catholic viewpoint on that than the Protestant, but I'll tell you the two ones that are the clearest and easiest to understand are the two Protestant sacrifice, sacraments. That is water baptism and communion because you enter the covenant through water baptism and you reinforce it every, on the Lord's day at least. Now I'm not saying you can't have communion and I believe single brothers' households should have communion together and and small group, home groups can have communion together. Uh, we don't have to only do communion on the Lord's Day, but we need to do communion at least on the Lord's Day. There was no Christians who didn't do communion every week on the Lord's Day until after the Civil War. And any doctrine that entered the church in the late centuries of the church has to be a little suspect. And... uh and it's because the modern church lost its, lost its understanding of symbolism, ceremony, and Im- biblical imagery, and that it's not just empty signs. It's filled with me. And it's not, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, if you'll study the Greek word for "remembers," it's not just bringing it to our mental memory, but there's actually an impartation of kind of revisiting it. Now, we don't re-crucify Christ. Some people would claim that some of the Catholic position on what happens at communion is kind of, and in the Mass is a re-crucifying of Christ, or they think the sacrifice is being offered again. Uh, I don't think so, but we certainly don't go that far. But But we do revisit it in such a way that it's just not some empty ceremony. You know, wedding is not an empty ceremony. Having sexual relations as a husband and wife is not an empty ceremony. Uh it's it's a uh it's a covenant ceremony. And it should be attended with great joy. Like people think you can't talk to one another. Yes, you can. Encourage one another and laugh and praise the Lord. And it includes, lastly, it includes renunciation. Uh Part of the biggest problem today is people still have illegal soul ties and they haven't renounced that. Renounce is a covenant word. It means to disavow, to disown, to have no shared files. It means I'm out of this old kingdom. That includes reexamining all your relationships. Sometimes you need to quit jobs and get different jobs. If your job is, you know, You're working in a brothel or something or whatever. Uh, Sometimes you need to quit certain friends, especially if you did highly demonic things with them, Uh, et cetera. So we will break here, but we'll actually just start a new uh, CD. And I want to look at...